Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. It's Matt. Uh, before we get started, I want to mention an opportunity that I think Weeds listeners are really going to be into. Our sister site, The Verge, is hosting a live event with Amy Klobuchar on big tech regulation, followed by a panel on Section 230, which is a topic we have discussed a couple times on the show. This is all happening on March 1st. Uh, Senator Klobuchar is going to be taking live questions from the audience. It's going to be a super in-depth, weedsy conversation. If you like this podcast, if you're into politics and policy, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So if you're interested, if you've got questions for Senator Klobuchar, you can register at voxmediaevents.com slash The Verge Live. That's voxmediaevents.com slash The Verge Live. Stocks only go up. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Portnoy. That's the dream. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Voxpedia Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Emily Stewart, ProPublica's Dara Lind. We are going to talk again about COVID relief, which um, we've done a couple episodes on, but we are now in a more um, final state of knowing what is actually in this package. The Budget Committee has completed its markup. Um, and Emily, maybe you can tell us what, like, what does that mean? Basically, it means sort of we have a big version of the bill, um, at least how it's a, it's likely to stand for a few days. Um, so that means the committees did their stuff in terms of deciding what should and should not be in this ultimate reconciliation bill. Budget committee on Monday went through um, you know, their own kind of markup, which is sort of ceremonial almost. Like they didn't make a ton of changes. They put it all together. And now... Probably there will be a vote on this by the end of the week on the House floor, which would bounce the bill over to the Senate. And so we've talked a lot. I mean, people in general have talked a lot about stimulus checks to not everybody, but almost everybody, um, unemployment insurance payments to the unemployed. Uh, But what else like what else is in this thing, as you've been reporting on it, that is interesting and that people should know about? Well, the answer is there's a lot in it. Um, a couple of things that I think are worth highlighting. You know, there is a lot of money in here for schools and talking to some of the House committees, they really point to that about 20 percent of that money needs to go to learning loss, which means basically 
helping kids catch up for the lost time, whether that means summer school or extra time. There's also kind of the Democrats' white whale here in state and local government funding. So a lot of money for state and local governments. And that's split a little bit, interestingly. Some of the money for states, say, will be proportioned out equally, but some of the money will go according to unemployed workers. Um, So certain states will get more money than others. There's also a fund for restaurants, a restaurant revitalization fund that's about $25 billion. The restaurant industry wanted over $100 billion, which they didn't get, but that's different. And there's stuff in here about internet connectivity having to do with the ACA and Obamacare. There's really a lot in this bill. Obviously, it's $1.9 trillion. So I I don't know if, you know, this is kind of going too far down the rabbit hole too quickly, but I am intrigued by the notion of learning loss in particular, because it does kind of seem like a, a recognition on the part of congressional Democrats that the things that really look uncertain right now, even more than kind of the baseline economy are, you know, for one thing, certain sectors of the economy, including the restaurant industry, but also kind of this, you know, the question of prioritization of school reopenings has become a really, really hot issue in its own right. And it's not something the federal government can really do anything about. Like, yes, the CDC has issued its guidelines for schools, but for, you know, for obvious reasons, the CDC can't like turn those into mandates. And so, Throwing money at, you know, public schools is really the the weapon that the federal government has at its disposal. But I'm curious about what the case is that this is something that can actually address the, you know, educational problems that are likely to arise, you know, given how much time kids are spending out of school, or for that matter, like the issues that have become apparent as the fight over school reopenings has become more entrenched and the kind of differences among stakeholders that that's shown that probably won't resolve immediately once schools open their doors for the first time. I, I, I'm just curious, like how this works in practice. You know, I mean, I've been I, I've got a, a kid in school and my my wife is very involved with the, the, the PTA there. I'm, you know, marginally involved. We we know the principal well and, and the teachers and and all that stuff. And everyone has been scrambling like so hard to get things up and running. And like, yeah, like we have concerns about kids who've who've lost stuff. And it, it, it just doesn't seem like there's a time frame in which to actually use this money. And I know like the the CBO's estimates of this seem to indicate that they expect this school's money will just kind of like dribble out over a multi-year period, which I don't know, it's like from my perspective, like that's fine, like schools should have more money. Uh, Biden campaigned on a permanent increase in federal education funding, so there's like no reason not to throw this in, but I I have a hard time imagining like this summer principals and teachers and school districts, like some of which are not even open at all now, like turning around and and putting all this money to extremely good use. It's it's a little bit of a, I mean, it's an odd policy process that we've had throughout this. Right. Well, and also some of the money is for, like, if you read through the bill, they talk about fixing like ventilation systems, which is a way to get kids back to school. But then the question is like, how long does that construction take? But whatever, that's jobs. That's (laughs) maybe good. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, it's like, I mean, A, it it is good to improve the school ventilation systems for like non-COVID reasons. Mm -hmm. But some of this, right, like, a lot of these are like things Democrats asked for, like way back in the HEROES Act. Right. We're like, had this been done like in May, 
um, then you'd say, okay, like the purpose of this was to get schools open in the fall, right? With like a crash HVAC upgrade plan and stuff like that. I mean, not just the schools, like the state and local aid in general, right? So the estimates of how much revenue loss state governments are facing have been revised down a lot. And Democrats have not really revised their like their own legislating in pace mm-hmm. of that. And so state governments are going to get a, a little bit of like a like a bumper crop of money. And I think it'll be interesting to see what governors do with that. Right. I mean, because most governors are Republicans, most state legislatures are Republicans. I don't think Democrats exactly intend to, like, facilitate the Brian Kemp, Ron DeSantis tax cuts of 2021. But like, that's what's going to happen. Right. right. Like all like all those Republican governors are not going to put this money to like building a social democratic utopia in in Florida and Georgia. So it, it's going to I mean it and that'll boost the economy, you know, in like all the normal ways that any fiscal policy does. But it, I think it's going to be interesting after like all this talk of a blue state bailout. Um you're going to get an actual policy outcome that's pretty different from that. I mean, to what extent is this just like a reflection of the broader fact that Congress can throw money at things very easily, especially when you're talking about such large quantities for kind of the total sticker price of the package, that that is in cases like education in particular, like the thing that they can do, right? Like, and, you know, and with state and local governments as well, like they can't require that states provide more generous, you know, unemployment benefits over and above. They can't require that states be like, to a certain extent, aggressive in demanding mask mandates and, you know, indoor dining bans and that kind of thing. To a certain extent, it seems like this is a reflection of Democrats want to see a world in which there is enough money for schools and school opening is prioritized and there's less pressure on consumers to keep the economy going by continuing to patronize businesses in a way that may not be epidemiologically safe. And therefore, the things that they can do or throw the money that would be needed at it to make that happen partially is a like, okay, it's then Republican governor's fault if they don't do it, but also just as a way to kind of express this is the way we think the pandemic should be dealt with and we can now go back to our districts and say we've done what we can. Yeah. I mean, yesterday I was talking to an economist about this and we got a little bit into like the state and local stuff. And what she said was in an ideal world, this money would probably be spent slower. There would be mechanisms in this bill to have states spend the money a little bit slower than they probably are going to. And she said, you know, obviously some states are going to do tax cuts. And and that's just kind of the world that we need to live in. And as somebody who lives in in a blue state that needs some money, I'm kind of like, whatever, I did fine. Do do a do a tax cut somewhere. Like that is okay. And maybe it would be better to do it more targeted. And there is a certain level of targeting here, right? States that have more unemployed people are going to get more money. States that have more people are going to get more money. But like you kind of have to figure you can't kind of get rid of the good for the perfect or whatever the saying is, you know? <laughs> Well, and I do think it's it's relevant, right, that um, the Speaker of the House uh, represents uh, San Francisco and the majority leader in the Senate is from New York. Um, the, the city of San Francisco is in a pretty serious sort of budgetary issue, uh, as is New York State. It's not the case that, like, systematically places Democrats are from are in budget trouble and places mm-hmm. Republicans are from aren't. Like, Florida is actually in quite a lot of trouble because they have a tourism economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, California writ large has a budget 
budget surplus because of um, people doing their IPOs and stuff like that. Uh, but like Nancy Pelosi's district needs state and local financial assistance. And, and I feel like that's probably, you know, like ends up shaping this, right? Like, as, as you were saying, Emily, right? It's like to do what you need to do to get the help to the places that need the help. They've wound up spreading some more cash around uh, than is is maybe totally needed um but so what 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 else what else do they have cooking here there's like some stuff to the affordable care act it, it looks to me like biden campaigned saying that he wanted to build on obamacare and the house kind of does that in this bill increases the subsidy levels things like that mm-hmm. i was our colleague dylan scott has done a lot of work on this and basically it looks like what's going on is that the bill will kind of increase subsidies on ACA for people up to 400% of the poverty level for a couple of years. And so I think the question there becomes, is it just two years? Does it last longer? Does Congress find a way to do this for longer? But at least for right now, for 2021 and 2022, um, there's some coverage there. And there's also stuff in here related to helping people with subsidies for COBRA. So people, when they lose their jobs, it can be really expensive to pay for healthcare all of a sudden when you quit your job or whatever. And so that also puts um, some money towards that. Where has the line been drawn in terms of like the stuff that isn't super duper directly related to the pandemic or like things that Democrats would have wanted to do before March 2020 and like don't have an obvious pandemic hook for like the ACA kinds of things? Like, yes, of course, you can make the argument that it's more important now than ever, but like you can make that argument for anything. Where have Democrats ended up kind of drawing the line between stuff that they can put into this bill without creating too much of a problem and stuff that's kind of a nice to have? Like, there was clearly very little appetite at the beginning of this process, despite Bernie Sanders kind of agitating for it for putting a minimum wage increase into the COVID package. Like, where is where is the line drawn between things that they think they can sell as being directly tied to getting, you know, the economy back on track and things that are part of maybe the broader build back better agenda, but that they're saving for, you know, second breakfast or whatever. I mean, it feels to me that the answer here is the $15 minimum wage. And that's an answer we should probably have relatively soon. But that's the one where like, this is democratic priority, but not necessarily as much as I maybe as a human being would want a $15 minimum wage. I don't know that that's specifically COVID related at all. And that's kind of where we are now, I think. And is that also kind of, is that like, are congressional Democrats just wary because they don't think they can make that case? Or is there also kind of a certain concern about the politics or policy of it on the merits? And this is just kind of becoming a punt by people who would like to run out the clock entirely. I mean, Matt, you might know more than me, but I would guess that at least part of the issue is that nobody's quite sure what this will mean economically. Even the CBO says it might cost some jobs. Now, you can look at that and say 900,000 people out of poverty is is, is good, even if that means fewer jobs. Um, but we don't really know. Like, there aren't that many places that have done a $15 minimum wage, certainly not for a long time. And so there is like, some uncertainty there that probably makes some Democrats a little bit wary and just regular people. I mean, there's there's like two things going on with the $15 an hour minimum wage in, in this, right? One is the procedural question of like, can Bernie Sanders talk the parliamentarian into the view that this is a budgetary measure? Um, I've gone back and forth on that like 
four different times uh, since since Election Day. I am now of the view, as as Joe Biden says, that the parliamentarian will say no. This goes back to when Republicans wanted to repeal the ACA mandate. And the parliamentarian said they could not do that, that that was not a budgetary measure. Um, so then they came back and they said, OK, instead of repealing it, we are going to reduce the fine to zero dollars. And the parliamentarian said that was OK. Um, so that indicates that the parliamentarian is very literal minded about this, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And. In a, in a way that makes no sense. And this wound up becoming like a huge national drama because that became the basis for litigation, Supreme Court cases. It was like the highlight of Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to me that given that precedent, if Senator Sanders truly, truly, truly wanted to force the issue on this, he would not have put a $15 an hour minimum wage into this. He would have put a 100% payroll tax on wages that are less than $15 an hour uh, because the parliamentarian has clearly signaled that she's open to like dumbass uh, gimmicks achieving these legislative kind of yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that they are instead trying to force it through kind of suggests to me that Democrats are tanking this on some level because there is substantive disagreement inside the caucus as to how high the minimum wage should be raised and how it should go. I mean, I think it's, it's like a really unfortunate situation for low-wage workers, right? The minimum wage right now is less than $8 an hour. Joe Manchin says he would raise it up to 11 which is a lot more than the current minimum wage. But Progressives have put so much equities into 15 that they would almost, I think, like rather have the whole thing fall apart than have anybody like come down and say, well, we're going to work with Mansion, we're going to work with cinema, things like that. It then becomes difficult on the timeline, right? They want to get COVID relief done fast, whereas negotiating amongst themselves as to exactly how do they thread the needle? Because like you can say, okay, it's $15 an hour, but it's phased in over five years and states with lower median wages can have a special schedule that's like, there's a lot of things you could do to sort of make make this work well but it is phased in no no but i mean you you can make the phase in slower right like before fight for 15 became a thing the way minimum wage politics would happen is somebody would say like we should raise the minimum wage by three dollars and then somebody else would say eh how about two ever since fight for 15 they sort of like everyone agrees on 15 and then you negotiate the timeline which is like a weird mm-hmm. way to think about it. But but like you could do it. It's just it might take several months, right, of negotiation and discussions with, you know, who knows, like McDonald's franchise owners in West Virginia. Amazon is like running ads all over. Like my internet is being stalked by Amazon ads telling me about how enthusiastic they are about the $15 an hour minimum wage. And like the White House wants to get this COVID relief bill done fast, right? So the easiest way for them to get this done fast is for the parliamentarian to tell them they can't mess with the minimum wage. And then it just becomes a completely separate topic. Right. Yeah. The the argument for kind of forcing the question one way or the other is that at least they do have a marker 
for second reconciliation or, you know, subsequent reconciliations for like time immemorial, since apparently that's how legislation is going to get done now. And, you know, if they, in a world where Bernie Sanders were really working, you know, we're, we're doing what you say, like, that would be great news for the $15 an hour minimum wage and terrible news for everything on the democratic agenda that isn't getting passed through this particular bill that the parliamentarian could hypothetically rule against in future. Because like, at least with a negative parliamentarian ruling, you have like some indication that, okay, you probably can't do things that are less directly budgetary than raising the minimum wage. Without that ruling, anything, including things that are maybe more parliamentarily acceptable could have a threat from moderate Democrats of, oh, the parliamentarian will never agree. And because that's the kind of thing that often gets used by people who don't want to support a bill, as a way to kind of use the it can't pass as I won't vote for it, at least having that marker down will, I think, make it a little bit easier going forward as we kind of hit the really tricky part of the Congress, which is going to be the lobbying among various stakeholders in the Democratic Party and in Congress for what goes into the next batch. Well, we really saw this Stephanie Murphy in, in the House, one of the, the leaders of, of the Blue Dog Caucus now. Um, you saw her uh, over the weekend in Bloomberg, like really trying to pump the brakes, not on this bill, but on future bills by saying she wants to see legislation that can pass the Senate. Right. Which is a way of saying that like moderate House members do not want to take votes on controversial progressive bills that then die in the Senate. They want Senate Democrats to work on bipartisan bills that get 60 votes, which in a 5150 Senate means like that that's a high bar to clear. And then it's an easy vote for House members, right? Like she's saying like anything, if you can find nine or 10 Senate Republicans to vote for something, I'll vote for whatever you want. Right. But like, don't, but don't ask me to vote first. Right. That's like, that's the view of the frontline House members. And that is very different from the view of activists who want to continue pushing the envelope on the Equality Act, on immigration, on, you know, on like a bajillion different things. Or for that matter, from the view of like Senate Democratic leadership, which would probably rather have most of the caucus on board with a 50 vote strategy and like at least, you know, at, at least have a fighting chance on that, then kind of go immediately from passing a big package to trying to figure out which of their various priorities could possibly get 10 Republican votes. Yeah, let's let's take a break and then loop back around to what's in the relief bill. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. For people who, you know, are are sort of in the thick of things now, I mean, we talked about some of the kind of indirect stuff and, and aid to people, but what, what should you expect directly? Like, is everyone going to get their, their $1,400 like next week, like really, really soon? Can we stop having the where's my check Twitter? Like, what's what's going on? Where's my check Twitter will never die because they're not going to be $2,000 checks. So uh, I'm sorry to inform you of that. Shout out to former Vox writer Jeff Stein, who is the person who is going to continue to get asked where his checks are for the rest of his career. <laughs> yeah. So we will. I mean, I don't think it'll be next week that we'll see the checks, but the $1,400 checks are in this bill. And I would have a hard time believing that they will go anywhere. They uh, <laughs> given everything. They... Um, are for anyone who makes up to $75,000, phase out around $100,000. There is also unemployment insurance in here, which as much as everybody likes to talk about the checks, which are important, unemployment insurance may be more important. What that is probably going to look like is an additional $400 a week in federal benefits for unemployed workers. Right now, they're getting $300 through March 14th. The House bill as it stands would extend the $400 through August 29th. Now, if you think back to Biden's proposal, like his initial thing in January, he wanted it through September. So there's a month being shaved off there that it's not quite clear yet if it's going to be put back on or not. Um, Ron Wyden in the Senate has sort of hinted he would like to see that extra month back in there. Um, But I don't know what's going to happen there. It's interesting, though, because, I mean, the the sort of public health timeline, you know, seems optimistic in terms of when vaccines will be broadly available, things like that. Like, my official position is that there should be automaticity and that this should be conditions-based rather than House members guessing. But, like, as far as guesses, like, this doesn't seem like a terrible guess to me, unlike the March deadline that was in the last bill, which was, like, totally, like, obviously inadequate at the time they passed it. And everyone was just like, well, you know, we're going to have to do another bill. It's interesting that it's just described, I, I realized I saw some uh, survey experiments, and it sounds a lot lower to people when you say $400 a week than when you say like $1,600 a month, even though those are the same amount of money, uh, which which is interesting. But like, I, I do think that people have consistently underestimated throughout this pandemic, like how large the increase in unemployment insurance benefits has been. Like, that's why these bills have such like large top line numbers like this is a big expansion of a kind of typically threadbare uh sort of program and it's it's going to be interesting when it goes away because like probably unemployment insurance should be more generous 
basis on a Definitely. like on an ongoing basis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if any if either of you have been on unemployment, but a few years ago, I was laid off and I got my first check, and I was like, "Why well, are you guys joking? Like, I live in New York City, what do you think I'm going to do here?" Um, and so, I mean, I do hope that this does spark a conversation about what unemployment insurance should look like in the future. If you think of Massachusetts, the average benefits are like $550. In Mississippi, they're like 200 And it shouldn't be that way. And I think we've seen with this, it really has made a difference for people where you are unemployed, you're looking for a job. Let's be honest, right now, there aren't a lot of jobs and they can actually live their lives. Some people have been able to save more. And I have a hard time thinking that's bad. Now, like, on this bill, I really wish they would put in the automatic stabilizers. And I know, Matt, you hinted at that. But I like I just don't understand why we're not doing that. Basically, what that would do would be to phase out benefits as the economy gets better. And you could have different measures, whether it's the state unemployment rate or maybe vaccines. But that just seems like such a better way to phase out unemployment benefits than just literally guessing when the pandemic will be done. Because there's a world where you could phase them out earlier. But at the very least, you're not setting people up for like a random cliff sometime in the summer. So my question, I mean, as long as we're kind of thinking about, you know, reworking unemployment, it does seem like this is another issue where the federal government has the money lever, but so much of this is up to the discretion of state governments, whether that's, you know, like levels of benefits or certainly the way that it, how much investment is put into making the system easy for people to navigate, which like certainly in the early months of the pandemic, everywhere had horror stories about just how impossible it was, given the rapidity of the job loss, for people to actually be assured that they were enrolled in unemployment at all. And, you know, I wonder if we're talking about this kind of automatic stabilizer, like if we're aware that policy wise, sometimes job losses happen more quickly than Congress can legislate a bump in unemployment insurance. Like, is there maybe an analogous case to be made for the states need to be able to manage an unemployment benefit system that is serving many more people than they expect to serve in normal times? Because either they're going to be serving a normal number of people or they're going to need to serve way more. And in the latter case is really when you need to be able to just have those checks going out on a regular basis. Uh, I do think in an ideal world, we would have a federal system. Like you talk to experts on this. They're like, we this should just be federal, like social security, right? But there is a sense, at least back in March and April of last year, where even the best system was going to be completely overwhelmed. There were just so many people calling. Like, no, there's no reason to have to be able to staff up that much in normal times. I mean, we should be talking about how to at least incentivize states to be better at this so that the system isn't so much that like we make it so impossible for you that obviously at some point you're just going to give up or the benefits are so bad that obviously you're just not going to try anymore. The problem is, I think, at least in part, that in normal times, nobody thinks about this. Like back in the Great Recession, a lot of these lessons were learned and then everybody forgot. And so now it's like, oh, we should do this. We should do this. And then in, in a year or two, if things are back to normal, the political impetus dies down again. Right. I mean, I, I don't think even it's a nobody is thinking about this. I think in normal times, this is seen as a like safety net programs are seen, especially by conservatives in state government where they have to keep balanced budgets as like a, an easy way to cut program costs. You don't want to, you know, you certainly, you don't want to be spending too much money on the quote unquote undeserving poor. And you certainly don't want to be spending too much money on the government workers who are supposed to be helping those people. And, you know, the way that that kind of flickers in and out in exceptional times is that 
last March and April, nobody was saying that if you lost your job, it was because you deserved it, right? It was like, those are the times when it becomes very apparent that people lose their jobs for reasons other than being unfit for the job market. And that kind of discontinuity is, it does seem like in a world where everyone was pretty comfortable with the direct $2,000 check benefit that like, you know, and, and a world where people really have been sensitive to the impact on the job market of the pandemic crash, that maybe it would be a little more possible to connect those dots and say, you need to have a system that's built for the times when, you know, people through no fault of their own are going to fall into unemployment, not funded at a level that you associate with, well, we kind of want to discourage people from using this anyway for social engineering reasons. But this is, you know, I think beyond questions of like deserving, undeserving, poor kind of stuff. Like there are some topics where uh, the gulf between like right of center economists and left of center economists is really big. And this is one of those topics like right of center economists really, really, really think that it exacerbates recessions to make unemployment benefits more generous during economic downturns. They think that there are substantial uh, real side adjustments that need to be made during downturns, that things that make it easier for people to avoid making those adjustments are very counterproductive. Um, they like There was a really telling it's a, like internet drama, but it was like Jordan Weissman, Slate's economics writer, he was making fun of Marty Feldstein, who uh, was a, a longtime uh, economist in the Reagan administration and, and at Harvard for like having these worries. And then Tyler Cohen, who's like one of the big uh conservative economics writers like he like went nuclear back against jordan like this is like such a core like real belief um on, on the right the pandemic partially alleviated that because there was a sense briefly that okay this is a public health emergency and we don't actually want people doing like really intense job effort and that's how this kind of bonus unemployment insurance got done in the first place but even now and uh, particularly like thinking about the future you know you're back to just this like really no meeting of the minds like i sometimes see issues where i think look like if everybody could sort of be reasonable and stop the posturing and the bs like you could work out a compromise that achieves like sane people's core objectives but like this is one where where it's like day and night as to like how do recessions work and like what's important for people. And, and it feels really kind of um, almost hopeless to me. And then the other thing I've learned through this is how much members of Congress embrace legislating by crisis, right? So like this bill includes stuff like it's not just that it doesn't include automatic stabilizers, but it includes things like the Biden enhanced child tax credit and these stepped up subsidies for the Affordable Care Act, which are clearly intended to be permanent changes, but they are structured as temporary changes. And then if you ask them, it's like, what's going on here? They're like, well, already we once a year have a huge legislative crisis around, it's called the tax extenders, but like a bunch of business side tax credits. 
credits. And way back in 2009, the Obama administration passed something as part of the 2009 stimulus, the Making Work Pay tax credit, which was a, an EITC enhancement. And that was a two-year program, but it's still with us all these years later. And they see that as a big success, right? That like that's a model for legislating going forward is to put weird shit in there that they want to make permanent that they don't want to raise taxes to offset because they think interest rates are low. But blue dogs don't want to embrace deficit spending. So everyone prefers to do this weird can-kicking game, which is like, like it's terrible. Like I, I think if you try to, even just people explaining it to me, I want to like, punch them like it's such a terrible way to run the government uh but like it's a huge subtext i think to what's going on in this bill right is that instead of saying okay we're going to take 1.9 trillion dollars we're going to use that money to address this downturn and we're going to address it in a smart way which involves automaticity and things like that it's like we've got this 1.9 trillion dollar number so we're going to just like put a bunch of stuff in there, some of which we think is necessary for the short term and some of which is just like stuff we want to do and we don't want to budget for in the out years. And then we're going to like hope good things happen in some unknown future political clusterfuck. So it's like nobody's going to know, like, are their child benefits going to go away? Is their health care going to triple in costs? Like it's it's weird. It really is wild the extent to which the arguments on regulation on really either side are based on the importance of like businesses being able to budget for future compliance costs. And that doesn't come into effect when we're talking about how people who like are using government support to provide some degree of financial security for their households, like whether they are whether they should be able to have any kind of confidence in things going forward. Yeah, like, obviously, you're not made worse off if you, like, get an extra ACA subsidy for two years and then it goes away. Like, you would rather have that than have it not go. But, like, it's still crazy. It's like you're sitting there with your household budget. And it's like, well, how, like, can we afford to rent a different house? And it's like, well, I don't know, right? Like, right. If you're if you're going to get the ACA subsidy, subsidy anyway, it would be helpful for you to know that. <laughs> right. And the child tax credit, all this stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, especially as Congress is, you know, want to procrastinate all the time. And sometimes you can see the negative effects of this. If you, you know, looping back to unemployment at the end of the year, everybody procrastinated so much in December around that $900 billion bill that a lot of states' unemployment systems were screwed up and people had delays anyway, because it just takes time to do stuff. And so it makes, I mean, it's just like the inability to plan around the government is a wild feature of America. And the members profess to be annoyed at how little they do. Um, but then they themselves uh, don't do very much. It's a, it's a frustrating, it's a frustrating situation to me. I we really saw this in the confirmation hearings uh, for Mayor Garland. Uh, like Ben Sass randomly was like, how come the legislative branch has abdicated all authority? And, you know, Mayor Garland, like he's been a judge all these years. So his answer was like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's like, what has Ben Sass done in the past? four years he's been in the Senate. Like, literally nothing, I think. Like, there's no there's no SAS bill. Right. One, one could argue that asking someone <laughs> who's going from the judicial branch to the executive branch 
why has the legislative branch ceded so much power to people like you is to kind of beg the question. <laughs> right, right, right. And I mean, and this is like this Congress is acting here, but you can see even so, right, they they act like people who don't want to be relied on as like the mainstay of anything. Um, I find it discouraging. Let's take a second break. Let's talk about some research. So this is a paper I came across earlier this month in the height of the the GameStop frenzy. It's called Zero Commission Individual Investors, High Frequency Traders, and Stock Market Quality by Gregory Eaton, Clifton Green, Brian Roseman, and Yavin Wu. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Um, and basically, it kind of gets at this this question that at least I've had for a while and a lot of people have, which is like these Robinhood traders, right? These people, the individual investors on the market. How much do they matter? Like, what is the difference that they are making? Obviously, in GameStop, we saw them make a difference. But like, what is the difference? And so basically, it comes to a handful of conclusions. It kind of figures out that what the Robinhood traders are doing, what they're buying and selling doesn't really predict whether or not the stock is a good idea. It kind of thinks that they are noise, which is kind of like, they're kind of guessing at their trades, I guess, in in a way to think about it that way. And it also finds that when they are not in the market, volatility goes down um, and the market is kind of better. Market quality improves, at least for the stocks that they're interested in. And now the funny thing about this that Matt Levine from Bloomberg flagged also is that the way that these researchers figured this out is that they looked at outages for Robinhood. Robinhood's an app that, that crashes a lot. And so they were able to kind of make these deductions because the app itself doesn't work so well. Can you talk through a little bit how they're measuring market quality here? Because like, I admit, I tried with this paper and the extent to which finance economists assume that you are familiar with everything they're talking about is really unusual, even among economics white papers that we cover on the weeds. Because it's not like they're not making independent assessments of like, you know, whether this was a good investment or like subsequent, you know, they're not like looking at subsequent stock performance and going like, oh, they like captured excess gains here, right? It's like, it's based on an existing measure that ties quality to liquidity. Well, I talked to one of the authors about this a couple of weeks ago, because I was like, I need you to dumb this down for me, honestly. And what he said was basically like volatility is down on the stocks that they're interested in. So not the whole stock market, but if you follow these Wall Street bets, which is the Reddit forum or um, Robinhood, like certain stocks are popular with them, certain stocks are not. And so you can kind of see and also kind of the transaction costs are better. So basically, like the price you're going to get between when you're buying and selling is a little bit better. So basically, like when you hear all of these kind of rich guys on CNBC being like the retail traders, the Robinhood guys suck, like maybe there is a, a monetary reason for them to be saying that. I don't know if they're right, but you know, you never know. So I mean, just to, to sort of back this up, right? If people don't don't know the full context, you know, Robinhood is like it's an app on your phone and a lot of stuff yeah. has been happening because like phones are cool and, and good app design is good. Uh, but traditionally to trade stocks, right, you have had to pay commissions to stockbrokers, right? And those commissions used to be really high, like in a in a traditional brokerage. And the broker would make a lot of money just off the fact that you are making trades. Uh, but that's also like a strong disincentive to actually trade 
stocks, right? Like you might make some investments, but like if you buy and sell stocks frequently, you're going to lose money just because you're you're paying these fees. Part of the internet and financial deregulation from the late 90s was to create places like E-Trade. Um, and Charles Schwab has one where the fees are much lower. And so it becomes practical for a normal person to make shorter term kind of bets on the stock market. Like, I'm not saying it's advisable, but like in theory, you could make money uh, with, with shorter term kind of trades with lower commissions. Robinhood has come in and it's no commission at all. Um, they are making money, it seems, like like a lot of things on the internet, like they are selling data about you um, to make money rather than charging you as a customer. So that creates this opportunity for like random people sitting in their living room to act like, I mean, not to act like high frequency traders, because those are very, very, very fast. Uh, but like you could make profitable trades based on day to day movements in, in the stock market there. There's like a big question is like, like, is that good? Right. Like, like what, what are what are the implications of that for society? Because you could be utopian about it. Right. And say, look, there's this huge mass of people. Everybody knows a little bit about the economy. Right. It's like you work places, you have friends. And so we are aggregating information even more efficiently than the old market dominated by professionals, that this influx of amateurs is creating more efficient pricing structures. And they're finding that that is not case, right? That like somebody may be making informed stock trades on this basis, but like in the aggregate, it's just noise. Like it's just a bunch of people operating at random and it doesn't provide any um, like price discovery value. Why that's important is like a whole other theoretical topic. But like in the finance world, if you could show that like bringing all these randos into the stock market was improving price discovery, people would say, oh, that's good. Like our capital markets are working better now than they used to be. And the finding here is that that is not the case. It's worth, I mean, like you can kind of tell from the common sense narrative, like how you can, you can logically predict how that might've influenced the number of people who feel like now capable of getting into higher frequency trading, but they actually do cite uh, past re- research on Robinhood from 2019. So like even pre-pandemic, which is when we know a lot of kind of people who had not previously thought about stock trading started getting onto that app. The 2019 research that they cite here says that the mean investor, average investor in Robinhood is 31 years old with an account balance between $1,000 and $5,000, which like even compared to the retail investors of the 90s, like never mind the kind of professionals, but a, a data set that is that apparently is cited a lot in finance economics from the 90s uh, has a mean age of 50 years old with a balance of $47,000. So it, it really is, it does appear that, you know, Robinhood in particular, or the kind of subsequent waves of e-trading have brought a group of people into the daily activity of the stock market who just would never have been able to have access previously. And so it, it like that that potentially, even if you were just to think about it in terms of like the aggregate amount of information, if you think of stock prices as information, which is the way that classically they're they're thought about, and like kind of why the the difference why volatility is bad, why the difference in transaction costs is bad, not just because like you are going to end up getting a nasty surprise if you buy the stock for a 
you know, if you if you purchase the stock for a higher price than you decided to buy the stock for, but also because it reflects a certain amount of uncertainty about the true value of the company. You know, you can see a world where it's just like the more data points we have, the better. And what this is showing is that those data points aren't making things much worse for everybody else. They're not like, you know, they're they're not distorting the market in ways that make it harder to figure out what's going on, but they are things that should be kind of ignored if you're looking to assess the kind of true value of something by the stock price. I mean, I do think it's important to at least say that it's not bad that people are, are trading more, at least in my view, and maybe I'm too market friendly. But like when I think about this, I think that my initial reaction to Robinhood was they're gamifying trading, they're making it too easy, they're pushing people into bad things. And certainly there are, there is some truth to that, that they are pushing people a little bit more towards risk than maybe is ideal. But it is hard to say these kinds of things should only be for institutions and for wealthy people. And so when I hear like, yes, okay, in the 90s, it was people in their 50s. Now it's people in their 30s. Like, Why not? It's also really hard to build wealth here. And like, if you have a couple extra thousand dollars to spend that you can't afford to lose, which I think is an important caveat there, like, why not give it a go? Um, worst comes to worst, you get wiped out. And a lot of people do. Like last year, I did a story on this and I heard the same story over and over, which was, I got really into options trading. I thought I was a genius and I lost all of my money. And that happens often. But then every once in a while, you talk to somebody who like genuinely has made some money. Now you hear a lot more about people losing a lot of money as well and probably more. But I do think that the retail traders are here to stay. They're like 20% of market volume now um, on some days. And and that's a lot. Well, I think it's, you know, when, when you're talking about like, should people do this? It depends like what you're considering the counterfactual to be, right? So like if you're trying to save money and you're considering, should I buy and hold index funds or should I try to pick stocks on Robinhood? I think trying to pick stocks on Robinhood is a poor choice. Uh, on the other hand, if you're saying, should I try to pick stocks on Robinhood or should I go to a uh, casino and try to do, um, you know, cause like I'm a smart guy and I know math and I can calculate things. So I'm going to try to implement, uh, optimal blackjack betting strategy, right? Like you're probably better off doing the stock thing. Right now, the casino might be more fun, but the stock thing also might be more like it just it's it's a matter of, of personal taste and different people enjoy different things. I think we understand that, like in most cases, going to the casino, even if you try to be really rigorous and really disciplined about it, is not like a good way to make money. But it is a fun thing you can do with money that offers the possibility that you will come away with more money than you had before is like part of what is entertaining about it, right? Like trying to do options trades that work like that. That's fun. Like you might enjoy researching, right? Like, you know, like it's uh, people do a lot of stuff with their time. Like I, my, my dad used to like meticulously keep score on baseball games that he watched. I you keep know? score at baseball games. There you go. And like, I don't know, like people just like stuff, right? And, you know, trying to like track different stock opportunities and price movements, like you can see how it's appealing to people, right? And like as a thing to do with your time and your money, like I can think of many worse things to do, but it would be bad, I think, to decide that this is like a great strategy to make sure you can have a secure retirement 
30 years in the future uh, because oh, I don't know. Sure. You probably can't. I invested. I I I, I invested in in IHOP stock because I'm I'm looking forward to pancakes uh, after the pandemic. I mean, it is fun. Like la- even last summer, I did um, like a fake trading account when I was was reporting on this on Robinhood, and so I made a, a paper trading account, and I just guessed based on stocks on Wall Street bets. And I like tripled my fake money, which and I just guessed, you know, so which is also we're in a bull market, which is, which is why a lot of people that think that they are they're investing geniuses right now and maybe are not. But it, like, had I been entertained, I mean, I feel entertained by my own like fake success. I actually do want to come back to the paper a little bit just to talk about Wall Street bets in particular, because they use discussion of a stock on Wall Street bets as like an indication of whether it's of interest to the kind of Robin Hood trading class, which initially I was like, okay, you're just kind of reaching for the nearest available variable. This isn't necessarily a good reflection, but they demonstrate that actually it is. And like, there is a demonstrated correlation between not only like when Robin Hood is working, a correlation between stocks getting mentioned on the subreddit and activity on the app, but a correlation when Robinhood is down, there's a lot more discussion of Robinhood on Wall Street bets, which suggests that like people who would otherwise be spending time trading on Robinhood are taking to Wall Street bets to express their frustration that they can't be trading on Robinhood. So it's interesting that like an app that has such a wide pickup is associated with a single fairly off the beaten path community. Like you do have to do a certain amount of active searching to find a subreddit or unless you like know somebody who you know who happens to be who who happens to be involved but it also does indicate you know kind of coming back to the question of like matt saying you know everybody knows a little bit about the economy it does say something about how people are making their decisions not necessarily based on like looking at the places where they individually have the most expertise and kind of lending their knowledge but trying to do a wisdom of crowds thing among the crowd that is also on their app and what the kind of, you know, what what their community is saying the hot bets are, which is not necessarily, it's it's a very uh, zig with the zig mentality. And you can kind of understand a little bit looking at how the GameStop stuff played out, how that can be both when it works out a, a very successful collective buying strategy and a very big liability for any individual trader. Yeah. I mean, you definitely see certain stocks and it's not just, I mean, some of it's Wall Street bets, but even if you look at certain Twitter accounts or TikTok, like certain stocks start to kind of take off certain ideas. And last summer, uh, Hertz, which had declared bankruptcy, took off among the retail traders and there was a big Hertz boom that made no sense because the company was bankrupt. So yeah, I mean, sometimes it doesn't make sense and maybe most of the time it doesn't make sense. But I think a lot of these people also I mean, they're there to make money, but they're also, like Matt said, they're just having a good time on the internet. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how, like, sticky any of this remains, right? I mean, like, there's a lot, I don't know, like, I've been using Clubhouse more, um, which also strikes me as, like, not a bad app or service, but just, like, something I would do less if it were more, like... (laughs) safe to like go hang out with my friends there's like a boom market in at-home entertainments that are particularly just like ones that are new and like something new you could try because everyone's a little bit stir crazy and for stocks also like the pandemic has coincided with this slightly odd phenomenon where like the market fell off a cliff last March, but then has been on a kind of long, steady upward march ever since then, which it's always like, 
you ought to benchmark your trades against a like buy and hold strategy, but obviously in your head, uh, it's like anytime you're in the green, like you're a winner. Uh, and when the market as a whole is up, it's like everyone's a winner. And it'll be interesting to see if it goes down because it's like real professionals keep making investments even during bear markets and try to do mm-hmm. well. But like I personally would just find that to be a bummer. Like make make <laughs> trades so that you lose less money than you would have lost had you just <laughs> held an index fund. Like that's not that's not very entertaining, even though like the economics are the same. Yeah. I mean we'll see what happens when the the market does another downturn. But you know, for right now it's like people are home and it is I don't know. I, as long as you're not playing with money, you can't lose. Like, I wish I can't trade on Robinhood, but I I really understand the appeal. It seems really fun. And maybe it'll never go down because we're going to build back better. And, you know, it's just going to be profits for everybody. Maybe. Uh, all right. Thanks so much. Uh, Emily, thanks as always uh, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis. And the Weeds will be back on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.